0: Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 48, recorded on April 8th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you, especially on a day when we've got a big show, and it starts off with a big code cleanup in the Linux kernel.
1: Yeah, it's dropping support for quite a few very old and obscure architectures, none of which I was really very familiar with, I must say.
0: Yeah, definitely some old hardware in here. Probably things that most of us have never even heard of, like Backfin and CRIS and FFRVs and things like that. mr 32 r obviously not very popular architectures anymore, but they had their day in the light. Now, I think we all look at this as a good thing. Generally, when these architectures aren't widely used, this is going to reduce the size of the kernel, which is always a common source of complaints. Some say it reduces attack vector. Others argue that. But I think the more interesting aspect to this story is... We often talk about how many different architectures you can run Linux on. We don't often talk about removing support, unless it's for like 32-bit support for x86. This is the flip side to that, is there has to be a cleaning, a maintenance from time to time. And these are the kinds of things you never get to see in a commercial product. It's all done behind the scenes. But
1: with Linux and the entire thing being done out in the open, we get to watch both ends of this process. Yeah, spring cleaning, if you will. And it is necessary, really. You can't keep supporting these architectures forever. And you mentioned 32-bit x86 there. You have to feel that that is coming. Not anytime soon, you wouldn't have thought. But it can't be more than, what, maybe another 10, 15 years max, really, before that's dropped, because that's just essentially obsolete. And it's just the march of progress, isn't it? These things happen, And there might be a few of these systems That are still out there in embedded systems or whatever but realistically they can run older kernels and maybe the the last lts or whatever if necessary and really how much life have they got left in them probably not anything beyond the lts kernel and otherwise people just have to not really care about security if they don't want to upgrade well
0: speaking of the march of progress we've also got to make room for new architectures we've talked about this before but this week, there's been some initial goodies landing in the most recent version of the Linux
1: kernel. Yeah, risk v which initially landed in 4.15, uh, there's been some improvements in 4.17. And keep in mind that this is the completely open, royalty-free architecture, which I've been pinning my hopes on for a totally free phone and routers and stuff like that. So it's really great to see that there's uh, improvements happening already. So now in
0: Linux kernel 4.17, there's support for dynamic f-trace. They did some cleanup to the atomic locking code. And module support loading is now enabled by default. So it's still kind of early days with the things that we're implementing, but they are things that are necessary and good to see. The market is really picking up around RISC-V. There is a lot of momentum because, like Joe said, It's open source and royalty free. And there's three companies that appear to be the leaders and sci 5 is the leading of those three. They just closed $50 million in funding for their developer board that has kind of a unique twist. The idea here is they're going to take the RISC-V processor architecture, royalty free, so they can rebuild and sell. And they're going to make a processor board as a platform product. I know that sounds crazy, but In simple terms, it's an app store where you choose the functionality of that system. It downloads, configures the RISC-V system for that functionality, and out of the box, Bob's your uncle, you've now got a dedicated RISC-V board for a router or to to run a a sign, a display. The idea is they can build a couple of generic systems that just need a final configuration that can be applied at the software level inside the CPU, which is something that the RISC-V designers have promoted pretty heavily. And then they'll just have different work cases or use cases in their quote-unquote app store that you apply, boom, right onto the silicon.
1: Well, $50 million of VC funding really does inspire confidence in this company. Yeah. And so I'm glad to see that that you've got them really pushing this forward because, like I said, this is the, the real hope, isn't it, for a totally free device. This is their third round of funding so
0: I don't know their totals that they've raised here but it shows that there is a lot of investor interest in this market so
1: this was this 50 million was a series C round so they've had an a and a B yeah and a pretty successful crowdfunder for their development board as well so yeah they're doing all right which is good to see and also excellent risk five news this week is that Debian is now supported
0: yeah 64bit version of Debian for the risk 5 architecture it's early days but it's essentially landed. This was a post on the Debian mailing list, and it's here. It's probably still got a lot of
1: work to do, but it's actually here. And it's bootable, it's unstable, but it's bootable. Yeah, it's a huge step, isn't it, that we've got a real mainstream distribution that is available. As you say, early days, it's not working perfectly yet, but you know that that's just going to continue to improve. And we will hopefully, around the time that we've got affordable RISC-V hardware, have a really good, solid version of Debian to run on it.
0: Speaking of kernel architectures and those architectures being free or not necessarily free, how about one of the most popular architectures, x86, and running a special kernel that's going to help you avoid all of those pesky alerts about patches for Meltdown Inspector, amongst
1: other things? Yeah, so the Linux Libra kernel, which is the totally blobless, completely free software kernel they've decided that they're not going to alert you about the patches for Meltdown and Spectre that require the proprietary microcode. So they're very much prioritizing freedom over security, which is a huge surprise. Not really. So what they're doing with the GNU Linux Libre
0: 4.16 kernel is they're taking the upstream 4.16 kernel and they're pulling out certain functionality, including just general microcode, update support. So they're not specifically targeting Spectre and Meltdown. It's just all microcode updates in the future, including future important updates, as well as the ability to load binary-only modules, like NVIDIA drivers. um, In the enterprise, I've, I've had a lot of situations where a vendor has required a very specific Linux kernel version, and I've had to load the proprietary binary module. So it sort of eliminates those use cases. But on the other side, they have made changes to the firmware request code in the kernel, potentially allowing some drivers to function better when they are capable of operating without binary-only firmware
1: in some cases. So there is some take, but there's also some give. And a lot of people have created a big stink about this, and kind of for good reason. But then again, is anybody accidentally using the Libra kernel? I don't think so. It's something that you're doing as a very conscious choice, And so therefore, you don't want these binaries that are proprietary, and you've got no idea what they're doing, even if it is going to supposedly increase your security. I mean, we saw with the initial microcode updates that they were unstable and were a bit useless, and they ended up getting pulled. So I don't think it's as much of a story as some people have made out. But it's something certainly to be aware of if you are planning to use the Libra
0: kernel. Yep, I 100% agree with that. You are intentionally running this kernel. It's sometimes just a great way to validate that a piece of hardware like a new laptop doesn't require any funky modules. Like, you know, when you run this kernel, you are good to go if everything's working. I'm not using this on my daily driver system, and I'm not likely using this on a large virtual environment either. But it's nice to have it out there. And for some folks that want raw performance without any meltdown, specter, microcode, patch, slowdowns because they got to compute for days, this is a solution for them.
1: Yeah, who cares about security? Eh?
0: DO.CO slash action. Digital Ocean is your cloud infrastructure on demand. You can get started in seconds. So when you go to DO.CO slash action and sign up with a new account, you'll get a hundred dollar credit. Now, that is a lot of DigitalOcean credit. My favorite system is just $0.03 an hour, and they've optimized the whole process to save you time. You can get systems up and running for testing and into production in minutes. They have SSDs on every single system, 12 data centers all over the world, Very well positioned, so that way you can play something near your users or near you, so that way they have unbelievable performance. 40-gigabit connections coming into these hypervisors, Linux for the core, KVM for the virtualizer, and then a dashboard for days on top of all of it, and a clear, easy-to-understand, well-documented API. That's DigitalOcean in a snapshot. do.co/action. You can deploy a base Linux system and build it from there, or an entire application stack like GitLab or Ghost, which is a killer WordPress replacement if you just need a simple, easy blog. Or build out your entire infrastructure, host your business website. Some of our favorite open source projects, entire backend and frontend. Are hosted on DigitalOcean. DO.CO slash action. Go try it out, get that $100 credit, build something fun, learn something new, and read their clear documentation. DO.CO slash action.
1: Okay, let's talk about Steam Machines. This was a big story that turned out to maybe be a non story this week. So, Steam Machines have disappeared from Valve's site, or at least that's what was reported. But then Valve responded to that and said no it's fine we're still doing it we've just kind of reorganized the site a bit and yeah they're not selling that well but they're not dead it's fine it's fine they're not dead
0: this is a hard one to read so they've removed any possible way to navigate to them from the front page and they say well we've done that because user traffic was low well now user (laughs) traffic's really going to be low isn't it (laughs) yeah And it seems like maybe the solution there would be to make it more visible. But what do I know? I don't I don't run the Steam store. They also pulled down promotional language. Um, that was a little bit suspicious as well. And they did reveal that they've sold fewer than 500,000 Steam machines in 7 monthish time. So that was a while ago. So we don't know what the number is now. But it, in my sense, hasn't been that good. So I think some of us have just sort of been anticipating this. And that's why the news got so much traction. And Val said, you know, it was just a routine cleanup. We were just doing routine cleanup. But we have taken a lot of feedback. And um, we've been real heads down on addressing the shortcomings that we've observed with that rickety Linux. Now, I may have added a little emphasis there. <laughs> um we think an important part of our efforts is our ongoing investment in making Vulkan a competitive and well-supported graphics API, as well as making sure it has first-class support on Linux platforms. I solidly agree with that With that final statement there. That I completely agree with. Um, they essentially are trying to position as we came into this with a whole head of steam and thought we really had something great and developers were going to take off, but then we realized that OpenGL was kind of crap on Linux, and then we realized that there wasn't really a, solid cross-platform competitive graphics API that competed with DirectX. So we have to make that work first before we can make the whole Steam machine thing work. I do technically buy
1: that argument. I don't think it's going to work. Do you think that anyone is really interested in running Steam games in a console-like form factor? It just seems that if you want to play Steam games, you're going to be doing that on a PC, or maybe with a PC running in a different room and then using a Steam Link. I just don't see the market, really, for Steam machines. If you want to have a console, then people are going to get an Xbox or a PlayStation or maybe even a Switch. That's always been the
0: core question with these Steam machines. And I think the market has shown us it's a bit of a mixed bag. The Steam Link, as you just mentioned, has been a success for Valve, and they've sold quite a few of them. It's also about 100 bucks nvidia has their geforce streaming stuff that they build into their nvidia cards on the windows platform and into their nvidia shield tv you can stream from the nvidia cloud pc games to
1: an nvidia shield tv have you tried that because i would always worry about latency there yeah
0: it's not too bad you know it really depends um i i am not a hardcore gamer like you are joe but uh (laughs) i i didn't really have too many problems i played batman arkham city and uh It looked great, it played pretty well, but that game may be better positioned for it than a sort of a twitchy kind of first-person shooter where response time is really critical. I'm not sure. I can't speak to that, but it does seem that these companies are definitely pushing
1: PC games down to the TV. Yeah, and Steam OS in of itself was a hedge, wasn't it, against the possibility that Microsoft would make it so that you could only install applications from the Microsoft App Store, which... We just haven't seen. We've seen Windows 10 be as open as previous versions of Windows. Open, I don't mean as in open source, but I mean as in you can just download an EXE and run it. You might get the odd warning or whatever, but you can install whatever you want. And so, really, Steam OS just hasn't really been relevant, has it? I, I don't know any serious gamers who aren't sort of Linux first, if you know what I mean, who are in the slightest bit interested if you're in the linux world and you care about software freedom and you you're running linux as a daily driver then it makes sense to use steam or linux or steam os possibly but the kind of people who only care about gaming they just don't care at all about steam os like they're like based on linux what why would you do that I don't think it's up to them to even care. It's supposed to be an implementation detail
0: on the part of Alienware or another provider, just like the Xbox is running some old version of Windows underneath, but the users don't care. But to go back to your point about them hedging against Windows 10, I think that's the bigger thing. If I was going to bet a beer on what's really going on, my rampant speculation and personal opinion would be the Windows 10 monster did not materialize, but Valve knows Microsoft well enough to know that if they said they want to do it, they at some point will likely get around to it. They'll just take a very slow route to ease people into it. And so it's probably worth them continuing to invest. There's other benefits to investing in Vulcan besides the Linux desktop and Steam machines, including Android and just helping crack the DirectX dominance. So I don't really fully buy that they're doing this for desktop Linux or the future of Steam machines. More so than it's just a way to keep a hedge going in case they have to invest all of their resources, they could turn this thing into a pretty solid product within six months to a year. And that's probably all they really need out of it right now.
1: Yeah, back burner is the phrase for that.
0: But we'll never know because they've obviously been using encrypted messengers to plan all of their Steam machine's maniacal plans, Joe. Well, maybe not, but it made for a segue.
1: Yeah, well, let's hope they weren't using Tor Messenger, which three years after launching, was still in beta and now has been abandoned.
0: There's been a lot of things leading to this, I think. The fact that it never got out of beta, the fact that it wasn't the perfect messaging client because it had a quote-unquote metadata problem, as the project calls it. But the real nail in the coffin here was that it's based on a project that is no longer. Instant Bird was an open source messaging client developed in the Mozilla community. And the lead developer in that Mozilla community announced last year he was stepping down, wrapping up, hanging up the
1: keyboard. He was done with the project. And that really kind of sealed the fate of Tor Messenger. I do wonder about this sort of general distrust of Tor that I, I seem to pick up from a lot of people that people know that it is possible to work out some of the the traffic and the where the traffic's coming from and that it's not totally foolproof and that kind of undermines faith in it really as a as a platform generally so i wonder to what extent that stopped people from adopting it and also the fact that there's just a million other messengers out there already that people are using did they really need another one yeah i
0: Definitely take your point, and I think you're right. I think the fact that this thing had a quote-unquote metadata problem also sort of hurt the brand of Tor, if you follow. So this group that's supposed to be known for trying to keep you secure and private online creates a messenger that essentially leaks metadata. I mean, I use the term loosely leak, but
1: that doesn't really play well to Tor trying to protect your privacy. Yeah, and in the meantime, we've seen the rise of Signal, and that's become really popular with people who care about privacy. So I think that it probably was a wise decision to just give up on this.
0: Mozilla's got another project in the works, though, and this is one that they really seem to be passionate about. It's bringing augmented reality and virtual reality to Firefox. And they appeared to be doing this with a dedicated augmented reality, mixed reality browser
1: called Firefox Reality. Now, am I some sort of old man or Is it normal to not really have much interest in a a mixed reality or augmented reality or virtual reality browser? It just feels very kind of 80s movie future, doesn't it? That really, I just, if I want a browser, I just want a browser. I don't see why it being in AR or VR, I don't see any value add there.
0: I know this is something they've thought a lot about because I got a demo of Firefox WebVR, I think in 2013, 2014 at OSCON at the Mozilla booth and they've been working on it since, since then. And I, I think they do a really bad job of explaining why this should exist. And I've, I've criticized them on the show before about the way they communicate they communicate like they're talking from one business to another business. And it's totally, the the elegance of what they're trying to do is totally lost in the corporate speak. Um, Because they they wax on about the future of the web and how it's going to be heavily intertwined with virtual and augmented reality. And that future is going to live through the browser. And that's why they're building Firefox Reality, a new kind of web browser designed from the ground up to work with standalone virtual and augmented realities. And the real purpose of this is in the augmented reality content creation process, it's a very creative process. You go in with some of the current editors and you actually edit in augmented reality. You position things. It's more like directing a movie and setting up a scene than it is writing code. And what Mozilla's position here is, locking all of this down to proprietary applications that only work on Windows and the Mac would be a travesty. And the, the best use of augmented reality is going to be like in enterprises and work cases where people can focus on designing the augmented information around the office space they need for the tools they're working on. And they don't have to worry about creating some sort of proprietary application to run it on Windows. They can use open web standards and pop it in a web browser, and people on Android, people on Linux, people on Windows can all view the same augmented reality objects. That seems like a good idea, and you want that kind of thing to be an open source tool that is cross-platform. And I I agree that people should be focused on the content, not building applications, and that you need somebody to do something like this if that's ever going to take off. But I'm also like you, Joe. I just don't really ever see this going anywhere. If it ever does, Mozilla needs to be prepositioned and ready to run. They need to have the groundwork laid. And there needs to be some sort of standard ready to be proposed, so that way something open is adopted instead of something that's rammed down our throats by some major corporate player. But I still, I am I'm, I'm really have a hard time beyond the big picture getting worked up about this and never see myself trying this, unless something really changed.
1: Well, that's the key issue here, isn't it? That if you look at this situation right now, it just seems like it's just way too early for this. And it just seems totally irrelevant to right now, but... If you look at the mistakes that they made with Firefox OS, the major mistake was waiting too late. Android and iOS had already firmly cemented their place in the market, whereas with this, they're almost too early with it. And it's way better to be too early than too late, right? There's a lot of different use cases for stuff like this. They're trying to build a framework,
0: a standard, all of that with this. And you could see use cases like on a phone. Maybe you have an app. You hold it up over a sign, uses the camera to capture the sign, and then it uses this Firefox reality browser. Maybe it's just a browser embed inside an app to do the translation and display the translated text. And the developers didn't have to ever worry about how to display that. They just had to worry about how to do character recognition and do translation, which is a very hard problem on its own.
1: I could see it. I could, but I think our hardware is going to have to get a lot better. Hang on, we've already got Google Translate for that. What do we need uh, an open source version for? (laughs) Yeah, what do we need an open source version for? Famous last words. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not running everything through Google servers, and so they know exactly what we're up to. Yeah, What what would be the point of that, eh? Well,
0: you can know exactly what's going on in the news, in the open source world, every single week. Go to linuxactionnews.com
1: slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us.
0: And while you're over on our site, linuxactionnews.com slash 48 for all of the links for anything we talked about today. And consider supporting us on Patreon,
1: patreon.com slash JupyterSignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for
0: joining us and we'll see you next week. See you later.